Is zero possible? It is, and we've actually proven it. But is that really the point? The idea is we're trying to create a mindset. It isn't necessarily the fact that we're always striving for zero. What do you think a Tool concert would be? We were on the front row right in front of the pit, and I got it up to about 105 decibels. Okay. Points. Yeah, so it was loud. Do you have a song? You should put it to a song. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Like, that would be fun. And then you could video yourself doing something. I mean, I think it'd be fun. Safety's all about engagement. Engagement's all about people. Well, we had a good time practicing it. There we you didn't go. know what the moves were, but we imagined what yes, they were. Yeah. So. Well, that's interesting. Inside bass, use your big engines, turn, not twist, dip, and drive. Probably the one thing that any frontline leader doesn't do when it comes to safety is to recognize good behaviors when they see them. Step outside of your comfort zone. Ask those difficult questions. Oh boy, how long is this podcast? <laughs> we'll be here as um, long as you yeah, need. Yeah, exactly. Saving lives. Saving lives. Saving lives. Saving lives. Saving lives. Saving lives. By promoting safety and health through education, services, and products, this this Utah Safety Podcast. Speaking up for safety. Well, good morning. Today is February 6th, 2023, and we are at Swire Coca-Cola with Brad Patterson. And this is the Utah Safety Council Speaking Up for Safety podcast. So we're super excited to be here. We've had kind of a long history with Brad and Coca-Cola. And so we'll get into some of this stuff, but um, we're really excited to be here. And we have John Wojciechowski, our president as well. And this is their first first podcast. So we have Hannah Faust Mm -hmm. and Annabelle Dietering, and they are our occupational program administrators. And so they work a lot with our occupational program. And that's a lot that you've been kind of interacting with us and learning, you know, participating with us over the years. And so I think it's a great fit. And we're all excited to learn more about you. Very good. Welcome to Swire. Uh, I'm really glad that you're here. I think it'll be, uh, we'll have some tremendous fun based around the uh, long list of questions that you have there (laughs) and hopefully be able to answer them the best possible without slurring my words (laughs) or skipping anything. So I'm really excited that you're here though. And uh, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for being here. Yeah. So, I mean, we just had a few questions we wanted to go through, but also keep it conversational and and just hear, um, honestly, your experience and journey when Mm -hmm. it comes to safety. Um, I guess the first one um, that we were excited to hear about, this is kind of off the cuff, but we we actually have a recording of, um, we use your recording where you did the plug for um, the advanced safety certificate Mm -hmm. in our um, classes sometimes, because it was such a great one. But honestly, you've gotten some more awards. So you received the Utah Safety Council's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2022. Uh, Tell us about your path in safety and how you got to where you're at today. Oh boy. How long is this podcast? (laughs) We'll be here as Um, long as you need. Yeah, exactly. Here's the thing. I didn't plan on becoming a safety professional out of college. Um, When I went to college, and this was a few decades, four decades ago, I actually thought I was going to go into IT. I went through many years of college expecting that I was going to come out as a computer programmer. I did not. When I got out of college, I decided that that was not going to be my path. Part of it was the fact that a lot of my uh, friends and peers had gone into the banking industry. They had told me about what they were doing, and I really had no interest in doing that. So I actually had, if I were to break up my career over the past four decades, um, the first quarter of my career was actually spent in the building materials industry, both with a family business, and then I eventually went to work for a company that got bought out by a large group called the Home Depot. Um, Within the Home Depot, uh, for the first 
good golly, six, seven years of my career with the Home Depot, I was doing billing materials, working in, in the stores, managing a number of departments, and uh, I was actually working on the operations side of, of Home Depot in Canada. And, um, and that's the other thing, too. I am Canadian, so we'll talk a little bit about that. So that's kind of fun. <laughs> but when I was with Home Depot, I got asked if I'd be interested in joining a group. And it was within kind of the asset protection loss prevention part of the business that 50% of the time was going to be spent on occupational health and safety, working in a you know large big box retail format. And I thought it was kind of interesting. So I actually uh, um, I took the role. And for the first, you know, three or four years within my career uh, there, became a regional manager. And we made a decision at Home Depot back in early 2000s, it was like 2000, 2001, where we're splitting off the asset protection group away and creating an EHS team. Um, And I decided to go that route because I found when I looked at what I was doing, although I was very good on the operational side of the business, the thing that really drove me the most was the safety side. I was fascinated, and, and you know, one of my bosses most recently put it from the standpoint that I care too much. That's what he said. Uh, and I think part of it is the fact is that I do care, and by virtue of that, the safety aspect was most important for me. So I went back to school, and this is really quite funny, and this is how the Utah Safety Council and the National Safety Council ties in. We had the opportunity with Home Depot because of a relationship that we had with the National Safety Council to uh, get the advanced safety certificate. And I thought, okay, it's U.S.-based. I'm in Canada, but I'm still going to do it because when you compare the learning opportunity with the National Safety Council as compared to what else is out there, even at a typical four-year college or, or you know, an, an associate's degree program, the course content made sense. It was perfectly aligned with what I wanted to do. So uh, living in Canada, I got my advanced safety certificate. Um, this was a long time ago. Actually, it was 22 years ago. Amazing. Mm-hmm. But from there, I realized that even though I had my ASC, it still wasn't going to be enough to really help me in Canada. So I did a number of other coursework. Um, I did coursework in workers' compensation law, environmental law, and also occupational health and safety law. Because you can imagine... Even when we compare it to, say, doing an OSHA 10 or an OSHA 30 hour in Canada, you know, we operated in 10 different provinces that each had their own occupational health and safety acts and workers' compensation acts. So getting to learn more about that. Little did I know, though, uh, that three years after that, after I, I did that, I would actually move down to the U.S. with the Home Depot. Um, I was a, started off as a regional EHS manager until this company called Coca-Cola came along. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's been kind of my journey. I've been with uh, in the Coke system now for 17 years. It started off with Coke. I led uh, EHS for the Western United States. Um, and then gradually kind of morphed. I, I had the West, the Midwest. Um, I had Canada back for a, a short stint. And then in 2010, the Coca-Cola company bought out uh, the company I was working for at that time, which was Coca-Cola Enterprises. And um, they had 80% of the uh, bottling and distribution within North America. And at that time, I became the North American EHS lead for sales operations. So if you think about Coke, we have our, our bottling plants that produce the product and then everything else. So everything that gets the, the product to our consumer shelves or out the fountain gun, I was responsible for that in North America. 
I came to Swire because uh, Coca-Cola decided that they were going to refranchise all of North America. And I had a decision to make. And in 2016, late 2016, uh, a fellow by the name of Jeff Edwards, who was our senior vice president of supply chain at the time, called me up and said, would you be interested in coming to work for Swire? And in February of 2017, I moved here. That's it. So there's my safety journey to this point. <laughs> now, of course, since then, um, I've taken on a lot more responsibility. Um, in addition to leading the EHS team, I also lead uh, quality and food safety as well as our risk management group. So Incredible. Wow. A lot of fun. So what's the difference between Coke and Swire or Coca-Cola? Very good. That's a great thing. So Coca-Cola is obviously the, is the, you know, the kind of the brand, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, what the Coca-Cola company does is, is they, uh, they come up with the various brands. They do all the marketing. They also manufacture and produce the concentrate that each of the franchise bottlers use to make the final product. Swire Coca-Cola is one of, actually in the U.S., we're one of 65 or 67 franchise bottlers and and distributors in the U.S. Some are as small as being a portion of a county uh, to as large as a company like Swire, where we operate in 13 western United States. So if you look at the kind of the landscape in North America, uh, Coke Canada is all one bottler. And then we operate in the uh, 13 Western United States, except for California. And then if you look around our map and territory, there's all sorts of small bottlers like Durango Coca-Cola, which is a small distributor that's based out of Durango, uh, Colorado, that handles Durango and Farmington. And we have others. So there's it's yeah. an interesting landscape. But we're basically a franchisee, if you will, of the Coca-Cola company. So we operate, as I mentioned, within the 13 Western United States. But Swire globally, as a, as a global organization, also operates in mainland China, in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and now Vietnam and Cambodia. Okay. So. Well, I remember, so I don't remember how many years ago, but I was able to come in and we did a tour. And it's mm-hmm. a very interesting facility for sure. One thing that I remember was sitting in the conference room and you showed us this video and it was all about the culture or safety culture of Swire. Mm-hmm. And there was, you'll have to remind me, there was like a, a word or a, what, what was it that kind of like led what their culture was? What their culture was? Acronym, acronym or something. I remember watching this video and it was kind of like about the company and it was so, right. it was such a big company with such a like personal feel to it. You know what I mean? So that's what I remember. So I, I could see why you'd want to come work here. Yeah. The know? one thing, the one thing that really drew me to uh, Swire Coca-Cola when I was wrapping up my career with the Coca-Cola company and Coca-Cola refreshments was the idea that, um, you know, it's very much a, the best way to frame it up, we're like a family as compared to other companies where it's very much a, like a corporate entity where, you know, safety operates in a silo. Um, Here, safety operates across all functions. And one of the big things that we really strive for is this idea that we're there to empower ownership of safety in the business. We do it by making sure that we have subject matter experts, which is our EHS team members. But we also do it in such a way that we have a framework to build capability in those folks. We make sure that we have the right information, the right training courses to be able to train our folks appropriately. They have a clear understanding of what the expectations are. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to creating a mindset or building a mindset around zero loss as possible. Okay, uh, And that's probably the most important thing. So whether it's zero incidents, zero injuries, 
zero environmental impacts, if you will. And we look at it even broader from that when we start thinking about uh, the other aspects that we that we feature around quality and food safety. So, oh, that's really cool. Well, and I we talked we started this question with the Lifetime Achievement Award. So. Mm-hmm. For those of you, I guess, that don't know what that is, that's this is last year was the first year that we had that award. And so it just really covers, you know, somebody that's been in the safety and health industry and really made an impact on a very large scale. And so one thing that I think is really cool is we had, I don't know, a handful of five, six, seven kind of nominations. And a lot of the people did a lot of great things, right? But what was so cool about you is you had great nominators. So we had Peter Mills um, was one of them. Mm-hmm. And then Suyanka Neopani, who used to work with you. Yes. Um, and she does a lot of work with us too. So we, we really appreciate her. But you not only got nominated once, but you got nominated by two separate people who don't Suyanka no longer works here. And so they nobody knew that you got, you know, they had nom- both had nominated you. And so I think I that... Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we came in, when it came in and we looked at it and thought, well, they're not connected to each other, you know, but I think that just really speaks to how your reach and how, how much of an impact you really truly had with people that you work with, people you used to work with and just the safety community. So, um, I think that's, that's really cool. Yeah. It was, a. I got to admit when John phoned me, well, actually you guys were on a conference call. We were on a mm-hmm. video call. I was so extremely humbled. And then when I found out after the fact who had nominated me, I was um, obviously very grateful for the nominations. Um, so Sianka worked with our group up until January of last year. Then she went over to the state DOT, mm-hmm. um, which to me, and I think I talked a, bit, a little bit about this during that. You know, when you look at, as a leader within any organization, I think one of the primary roles of a leader is to facilitate their team's success. And when it came to Sianka, it was such a, to me, it was kind of a, a bittersweet moment when she said she was moving on to move to the DOT. But when I looked at it from overall from her career aspirations and what she can achieve or what she is able to, to achieve, it, she almost, it, I don't want to say she hit a plateau with us, but I think one of the things was is that being able to move off and, and do the regulatory work with the DOT gives her an opportunity to expand her horizons as well, which was really exciting. And yeah, for her to nominate me, I was just, I was tickled. Um, Peter Mills, who at that time was our senior vice president of supply chain, he was actually, this was, he was doing two roles. We call it double hatting. He was also our global executive director of supply chain for the overall Swire Coca-Cola entity. He's now moved back to Hong Kong. So he's, uh, he's leading supply chain from the top. So he's still there. Uh, and uh, I was just, I was very fortunate to get nominated by him as well. So yeah. uh, it was a great, um, uh, humbling experience and uh, one that I'll treasure forever. Yeah. No, I think it was great. And one of the questions, I know I'm stealing one of your questions. But oh, no, take it. In what they submitted on your behalf to nominate you for that, your motto, they quoted you as your motto is safety is all about engagement and engagement is all about people. Right. So kind of explain to us what that means to you. Sure. So one of the things, if you think about safety, I mean, the idea of safety is that the only way that I can can change a person's norms and beliefs or their culture is if I engage with them. But more importantly is how we engage. So if, you know, we, busy working warehouse, take that for an example, one of the, one of the cultural beliefs of a lot of people that come in is the fact that productivity is more important than anything else. I have to get cases out the door. But when you couple that with the idea that you can do it safely and you provide our frontline associates 
with the ability to work safely, then to me, that's really you're engaging with them. You're really getting to that point where truly they're changing their norms and beliefs, which really drives culture. And at the end of the day, engagement comes down to how we work with our people. And that's why it's so important. And it's funny that that came out. Golly, we did a lot of work um, in around safety culture with Coca-Cola refreshments. We've done a lot here with Swire as well. And one of the things that always stood out is the fact that at the end of the day, it's all about your people. You can't, an individual leader on their own can't change the culture of a company. It takes the engagement with their people to be able to do it. And that's how that whole motto came about. No, I like that. We also have that you had in here that you were focusing your message on zero is possible. So in Mm -hmm. safety, we hear that a lot, right? You know, it might have different terms or different ways of people, you know, saying zero accidents or zero, zero injuries, incidents. But is zero possible? It is. And we've actually proven it. We just recently went through where we, um, we have a competition every year amongst some of our groups where we look at the opportunity within our, within our large sales centers all the way down to our small sales centers of, of we look at things from a um, number of incidents they've had. Uh, we look at their, you know, uh, how well they're doing from a, from a leading indicator perspective. So we focus a lot around training. Uh, we focus around um, beyond training, just capability building and everything else. But it's interesting when I take a look at the at the top sales centers that we've had, as well as plants and large warehouses. Yeah, we have a number where zero is possible, and not just looking at it from a, you know, traditional work comp, you know, OSHA recordable perspective. We look at things like what about auto. What about powered industrial equipment? It is possible. Now, I will tell you that there are some safety professionals who will say it's not realistic. But is that really the point? The idea is we're trying to create a mindset. It isn't necessarily the fact that we're always striving for zero because we still expect people to report incidents regardless of, of, uh, of how minor or how major. Uh, we still want people to report those near misses so that we can learn, so that we can avoid recurrence. But at the end of the day, if we can change a person's mindset so that they think zero is possible, then that's fantastic. And that really is part of our overall cultural journey as well. Well, and like they say in other areas, right, zero is not just possible, but that's what we want, right? You know, you don't, I wouldn't want that for, I wouldn't want anyone in my family to have injuries or yours or yours or yours, you know? So if you look at it on a small scale and then duplicate that, I think that's how everybody can get there for sure. It is. Yeah. And quite frankly, you know, in many cases, um, depending upon how we look at it, yeah, zero may not necessarily be possible depending upon, you know, the different industries that you're in. But I think it's the idea of getting people to think that it is possible and that, you know, making sure they're not cutting corners, making sure that they're, you know, following safe work instructions, whatever the the method is. But yeah. You've spoken a lot about engagement and Mm -hmm. mindset and um, we know that you created 14 life-saving rules for engagement and we were just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you created those and then what impact those have had well that's interesting because i didn't create them (laughs) (laughs) but i can tell you a story um always good for a story so in 2021 the coca-cola company created uh the 14 life-saving rules we adopted them as a franchisee of the Coca-Cola system, but we looked at it a little bit different from the standpoint of how do we take those rules and how do we align them with what we're already doing? So instead of creating a new program, we adopted them and we basically said, okay, 
of all the 14 life-saving rules, how do those match up against whether it's a safety program we have, a policy, and in many cases, it's also a leadership commitment to safety. Because one of the things is that safety is certainly not new at Swire, right? It's, it's, it's one of our core values, especially when we look at it from the standpoint of, of safety first at all times. We actually have it up as our mission, our values, and all of our offices. And the interesting thing is when we look at the life-saving rules and you go through them, you think, well, well these are some of them are very common sense. But when you start talking with our frontline associates, and if you're just to say, hey, you know, uh, make sure you, you, you know, take time for safety or whatever you want to do, it really comes down to what have we already got in place that we can just help leverage? And that's what we did with the life-saving rules. So, yeah. Well, as well, I, th- I think you developed this one. Um, you, it's, um, we, we, we were looking up you, all your work and the things you've done for your Lifetime Achievement Award. It mentioned that you at least took part in developing a safety management system for Squire mm-hmm. um, that incorporates a learning management system, LMS, to provide training materials and resources for your employees. And I was just curious uh, what your thoughts were on how have you seen technology leveraged at Swire or other places that you've worked to help increase safety? So just different ways that you might have seen tech be used to just really um, systemize, streamline, or just improve safety overall. Oh, boy. Well, that's been quite the journey. If you think about uh, even just with mobile devices, you know, I've got my iPhone here. Yeah, Um, The interesting thing now is that when you look at um, the diversity within our uh, workforce, and if you're just to focus on age, I mean, we have folks that are brand new just entering the workforce um, and folks like myself who are, you know, kind of in the twilight of their careers, right? And you think about, is there a one-size-fits-all medium that is going to help, whether it comes down to training, um, things like JHAs? Um, there's, I mean, you can name all the programs off that you will. What it really comes down to is how well do we provide accessibility to those programs. One program that we have in, in uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about technology and how we're utilizing it, but the one thing I would call out is that anything that we do where an individual, an associate, would typically go onto a laptop to get, we also want to make sure that they can get it through a mobile device. So everything that we do has to be um, kind of that uh, mobile compliant, if you will, or mobile accessible. One of the programs that we have is a, is a program called Pristine Condition. We didn't develop it. Um, we worked with a company out of, uh, out of the UK that has worked with our uh, sister companies with Cathay Pacific Airlines, as well as a company called HACO, which is our aircraft maintenance company. And we also benchmarked it with a couple of other firms, one in the UK called Tesco, which is a big box, um, kind of like a Walmart type situation. Uh, and it's all about manual material handling. So really what it does is, is it has four essential techniques that we train to, but a big part of that program is being able to assess and coach your employees right at the time of assessment. So the expectation is that, um, um, and I'm going to play with my phone so I can actually pull up the application, but the, um, the one thing that we look at, you know, we can teach people the four essential techniques, and it really comes down to making sure that you're keeping the, the load close to you or inside your base, making sure that you're using your big, big engines for lifting, which is your legs, never use your lower back. If you look at um, having to push a cart or pull a cart, there's a, there's a way to do it so that you're not putting any of the force up in your upper body, you're using your legs. And then the other thing, too, is you want to avoid the, this idea of twisting 
when you're moving product. Because again, if you think about our merchandisers, you think about the folks that are working within our warehouses, they do a ton of moving of cases on a daily basis. Well, that's a great program. So we can train to that, but it's like anything else. If I train to something, how do I follow up? How do I make sure that people are actually doing what we ask and if we see them doing something, may not necessarily be what we've trained them to, how do we coach them on that? So part of the program, we actually developed this with, um, with Pristine Condition, it's called the TRACA application. And um, hopefully this will work for me. And I'm showing you, I mean, we're on a podcast, so I'll describe <laughs> how this works. But anytime that, a, that a, a manager or a supervisor goes out and does a kind of an assessment or a, an observation on their employee, one of the things we ask them to do, hey, you're observing the four essential techniques that I just described. Let's say you see all four and the person demonstrated it well, okay? They, they used their big engines, they brought the load in close, they kept it inside base, they, they made sure that they were turning their body, not twisting. How do we make sure though that we're recognizing them for a great job? Well, this app that we've developed actually allows us to do that and that we can be there with the employee, we can go through everything with them at the time of the assessment and say, great job. And that's really cool. Because I mean, at, probably the one thing that any frontline leader doesn't do when it comes to safety is to recognize good behaviors when they see them. We're very quick at times to identify those incorrect behaviors or when something's gone awry. With TRACA, what we've been able to do is we've been able to help not only um, support the idea of engaging with the employee, because again, safety is all about engagement, engagement's all about people, engage with the employee, let them know when they've done a great job and recognize them on the spot walk away, things are great. But if you find something that happens that maybe they were twisting or maybe they were in an awkward posture, then we have the opportunity to actually go in and do an observation with the employee right then and there. And in essence, we're talking about the essential techniques. And basically we can say it was correct or incorrect. So if we're looking at inside base, the big engines are using your legs. Uh, dip and drive, turn not twist. Let's say we identified one of those things as being incorrect. We want to make sure that we're putting comments in on the things that they did well, as well as the things that they observed that may be incorrect or could use some help on it. The cool part about this app, and this is why I think technology has been fantastic, is let's say, for example, it's been a while as a supervisor where I need to um, help, an, help an associate through and for them to understand what they've, what they've done wrong, okay, or done incorrectly. I don't like saying wrong. Sometimes it's just an opportunity. A person forgets, they get working fast. But what we're able to do is we can coach based upon the actual techniques. So we have all four techniques on the app. And let's say it even goes one step further. We're still not, you know, not making it clear as far as, you know, the, uh, their ability to be able to help coach and train. We can actually go in and we can pull up videos, and of course I probably won't be able to do it because I'm not in actually doing an observation, but we have short videos that allow for the person to uh, be able to see based upon a third-party trainer actually train it out. So when I think about technology, this is probably one of the biggest areas where we've seen a significant improvement is that anything that I can have in place to help me engage with my frontline staff, the better off I'm gonna be. The other thing too, we talked about LMS, and it's funny that um, you know with Swire we're actually onto 
I think our third or fourth iteration of our learning management system platform. We've now partnered with a company called SAP Litmos, and the system that we have allows us that all of our training programs are now mobile compatible, which is tremendous. And the reason why I say that is if you look at our demographic, we have folks that uh, merchandise our products and they're basically responsible for at our grocery stores and our large accounts. They take the product from the back rooms and they actually put it on the customer shelves for them. Our customers don't do it. In smaller stores like convenience, retail, and drug channel, yes, our drivers might help doing that, or sometimes it's the store associates. But if you think about that merchandiser and all they're doing day in and day out is working in those grocery stores, we need to have a tool so that they can do their safety training without having to come in and go into a classroom setting here on site. So we do that. We have uh, Swire University, which is is all on our on all our phones now, and I can go out and I can, I don't know if it'll open up for me, but it might. Yeah, it will. I can go out and I can do any of my safety training online now on my on my phone, which is fantastic. To me, that's been a, a game changer because one of the other pieces that we're looking at is how do we make training more meaningful for our employees. And we just made a a significant change going into 2023 with our training content. You know, one of the opportunities I think any company has is making sure that the training content is relevant. Because I'll tell you, if I have to go through a one-hour bloodborne pathogen training ever again, I'm probably going to lose it. Because I can, I can train you the the uh, you know the essentials of a bloodborne pathogen training. I could probably do it in like 15 minutes with examples. We'll find something. <laughs> but if you think about it, the old the old you know death by PowerPoint. We we have to get away from that. The other thing, too, that we find, especially within a diverse um, environment in which we operate, we have associates where English is not their first language. So we have Spanish-speaking folks. We have Vietnamese-speaking folks. uh, We have French. I'm trying to think of all the different languages. We've actually partnered with a company called Safety Skills, and uh, they offer up all of their training in multiple languages so that when I'm on here and I want to go in and do my safety training, I can click on this. And it'll open up, and of course, this one won't because it's not. This is an in-house class. See if I can find one that's new. No, there isn't anything up here that I'm. I'm up to date, by the way, in my safety training, and unfortunately, I don't have one. But with any of our new course content, it's multiple languages, and the learner just has to go in and select the language they want to learn to. If you think about even going back five, ten years, hard to do that with a PowerPoint training, right? Unless the person who was speaking could also speak in their native tongue, which is to me, I think it's been a huge miss over the last uh, few years, especially with entry level folks who, you know, as I mentioned, where English is, is a second language to them. So that part is really cool. So really around the learning, the training, how do you build engagement or, or, or you know, support engagement? That's to me where technology has really, uh, really pushed the boundaries. And I think it's been fantastic. We're starting to look at other things too, where you might have something that is uh, like an incident reporting application. Uh, we're actually looking at a couple of different ones right now that'll, that'll take the um, incident report all the way through to the incident investigation, the follow-up, uh, and the corrective action. Technology like that is, has been around for a while, but it's gotten to the point now with vendors like Velocity EHS, uh, EHS, uh, EHSS software, and Quantum that are just really coming out with just tremendous product. So for us, that's exciting because, you know, a lot of the stuff that we that we do is, I mean, we still have some pro, uh, programs and processes that are, are Excel-based, smart sheets, you know, those sort of things. Uh, but getting it to a mobile application is definitely the way to go. 
And my other favorite application, I'll stop talking. <laughs> this is my favorite. Um, NIOSH, uh, the NIOSH Pocket Guide, which is really cool. But the other one is the NIOSH uh, Sound Level Meter that I've actually tested this against um, some very expensive sound level meters. And it's great. So right now we're, we're, we're talking at 63 decibels as measured on the A scale. So that's, uh, that's exciting. What do you think a tool concert would be? Um, <laughs> John really likes tools. So that's yeah. why I'm asking. Well, okay. I can't, I don't know about tool cause I have not seen them in a lot of years, but I did go to a Jack White concert last summer at okay. USANA and, uh, this, okay. I got it to push up over a hundred decibels very easily. And I was in the front. Do you I know have who no Jack idea. White is? No idea. Do you know who the White Stripes are? I love them. Yes. Okay, so Jack White, Jack White, and his, his, you know, people say it was his sister was actually his wife, man. Um, they had, they were the, they were the two people in the White Stripes. He's since gone on a solo uh, an endeavor, and um, yeah, I went to his concert last year with my son. We were on the front row, right in front of the pit, and I got it up to about 105 decibels. At okay. Points. Yeah. So it was loud. It's, it's loud. See, this, that's the safety person in you. It never goes exactly. away. Even when you're away from work, it's just... Yeah, because you can always you. tell. I was very fortunate. Our, our, uh, I ended up getting the seats up at the front, and um, I'm the guy with the earplugs in, because I can still hear just fine with earplugs in. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, I think going back to this, we had a good time when we were going through and talking to you, you know, learning about you and practicing for any meeting where we were going to give you that, that award, and... I have a suggestion, if you haven't done this already, the push, not pull, dip and drive, turn, not twist, use your big engines. Those are the four things that you were talking about. Yes. Like, do you have a song? You should put it to a song. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Like that would be fun. And then you could video yourself doing something. I mean, I think it'd be fun. Listen, I'm, I'd love to hear it. Hannah and I actually have a childcare background. <laughs> so if you just need us to like act it out in front of the camera, we'll, we'll do it for you. There you go. <laughs> That would be uh, that would be interesting. So it's funny the the person who created Pristine Conditioner, he, uh, I think he would appreciate that probably more so than maybe I. Would, <laughs> but um, I will let uh, Brandon Wiseman, who's my senior EHS manager, I will definitely uh, offer up your your services <laughs> to him because we're always looking at ways. Because the one thing too, and, and it comes down to you know great safety programs. Uh, when we first introduced pristine condition here at Swire, I mean, we saw a significant reduction in manual material handling. And it's like with anything, there's it kind of ebbs and flows. And, um, you know, during the pandemic, actually in 2021, was the first time that we saw a slight increase in manual material handling injuries. Now, part and parcel of that, of course, too, is we're bringing in a lot of new staff and the challenge in getting um, folks to even do that type of work was was difficult. But what we found is that by just putting a bit more emphasis behind it and a little bit more creativity, if we can come up with a, if we can come up with a safety song, that would be great. So maybe we'll take you up on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had a good time practicing it. There we didn't go. know what the moves were, but we imagined what yes, they were. Yeah, so it's really good. So, fun. yep. So inside base, use your big engines, turn, not twist, dip and drive. Yeah. There we'll you go. send you some samples. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I like it. Great. Well, it's been really cool to just visit Swire and just and just kind of see the facility in general. What do you feel like when it comes to working for Swire or Coca-Cola in general are aspects of safety culture that they really value or something that you really appreciate about the safety culture at Swire? Well, that's a good question. I think one thing that I appreciate the most is the support, the tone from the top. Um, our uh, president and CEO, Rob Gehring, uh, is the first to really talk about the fact that um, safety is looked upon as a value. He makes sure that um, safety um, is it's communicated, it's important, 
it's part of um, everybody's kind of annual performance metrics. Uh, we have, uh, you know, it's one of the things that if you think about as a leader being, being able to say, oh, by the way, you know, your OSHA recordable rate is going to be one of the top metrics. Um, you, when you look at um, leading indicators like training, when you look at pristine condition, those are all valuable, valuable metrics that we look at each and every day. So that, number one, I think the tone from the top is important. I think the, uh, the fact that when you look at EHS across our company is that we actually have the support, not only within the business, but we also have that visible support and that we have the subject matter expertise. You know, we certainly have invested in ensuring that we have uh, top-notch EHS staff, which is important, but also being able to give them the opportunity to build their personal capabilities. So we invest a lot of money and time in their training. Um, Utah Safety Council is a big part of that because we have actually, if you look at our field EHS organization, including myself, I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't a safety professional in my in the early part of my career. That happened after the, the first quarter of the four-decade career. Every time I say that, it's like, man... Am I really that old? I don't feel that old. Um, but each one of our field EHS managers actually came from the business. They've either got a strong commercial motor vehicle experience, they've got um, strong logistics and warehousing experience, and no different than myself. And the important thing is we can bring them on board because we know that there's value in that experience because they can relate uh, to the folks that they're supporting. But what we need to do is to be able to effectively give them the right safety training. And for us, it's really important that we, you know, obviously we work with the Utah Safety Council in basics around OSHA 10-hour, OSHA 30-hour. You know, we've got some folks that are uh, now considering the ASE journey, which is good. Now, some don't live in Utah, unfortunately. So we might, you know, we're also proud members of the National Safety Council, too. So, but leveraging those opportunities in addition to what we do in-house. Um, so it's, to me, it's really exciting to be able to have those resources available to us that we can, uh, that we can lean in on. And the one thing it's, and I, I know I probably talk about this quite a bit, but if I think about like the 10 hour, for example, that the Utah Safety Council offers, it's fantastic for the individual to actually go and take that on site because they're not just learning from the instructor, they're also learning from the peers, they're the peers within the course. Because the one thing is that unless you're being trained by someone who is a, uh, you know, an OSHA 10 hour trainer that works in the bottling industry, it's really great to hear all those other experiences. So, you know, that's my pitch. That's my plug, John, for the for the uh, Utah Safety Council. Well, ever since the annual meeting, I just have to tell you, these ladies have been so excited. Like they said, they've been showing your clip over and over. So I think we will bottle up all your advanced safety and all your, you know, yep. the talk that you give because it's really been helpful. We literally show it in our classes because that's it's good. so great. Yeah, and that's the other big thing is that I know – um, with the advanced safety certificate. I mean, I think that we, you, you can't over-market that enough because one of the things I find is that for someone, even if safety may be just part of their responsibility, uh, which it was when I first got into my, you know, the early part of my career in safety, you know, working with folks that are in asset protection or corporate security that may have some um, either OHS or EHS responsibilities as part of their, their job description, going through the advanced safety certificate as compared to going to, you know, whether it's SLCC or going to a university may offer it like Columbia Southern. Those are great courses, but I think the great opportunity that you have is typically with the advanced safety certificate, whether you're doing the online or in person, 
you get the benefit of years of experience. There's a lot that have gone into those course contents that really tie back nicely into industry, whereas it's not as theoretical, right? So that's what I really liked about it. We had a um, fantastic trainer from the National Safety Council do our ASC courses up in Canada. And, um, you know, it's to me, it's, uh, it was great because you get to ask those questions. How does that relate to my industry? Yeah, and that's good. Well, and I think when it comes to that, one of the last two questions we had that we kind of feel ties into that was, you know, you've worked through all these different um, positions and roles when it comes to safety. You've probably seen it at every single level that it, that an angle that you could look at it from. Um, for you, when it comes to safety, what do you? How do you feel like when it comes to taking maybe a, hol- a holistic approach to safety from looking from the from the bottom to the top? Um, how has your perspective of safety changed, or maybe even um, what are some critical aspects of safety that you feel like maybe are generally overlooked or ignored that are actually really important and maybe just kind of get brushed under the rug or just kind of get forgotten about? Oh boy, that's a really good question. I think one of the I'll be honest with you, one of the things is that you can't lose focus on your frontline employees. Regardless of what you're doing from whether it's a new program that you're introducing, whether it's uh, you're doing job hazard analyses, whether you're doing, oh golly, I could name a number of different things. Never lose focus on who that audience is. The audience is not your C-suite. The audience is not your senior managers. The audience are those folks that are actually doing the hard work, um, whether it's working, um, you know, and again, um, working in our manufacturing plants, working out in the trade with our customers. Um, never lose focus on that. Take the time to actually go see uh, the type of work that they're doing. Spend time doing that type of work. That's one, probably one of the greatest joys I had in my career. I don't do it as much now, and it's only because of my age, but um, I don't throw cases as well as I used to. But I would love getting on the trucks. I would love getting out in the trade to merchandise a store, getting out to, to spend time with our salespeople, getting in, you know, to spending time with the route drivers, because I do still spend a fair amount of time in the plants because I don't have to work as hard. But <laughs> I will tell you, you've got to be able to spend that time to really, truly understand because, you know, it does come down to the motto, and I've been saying it for a number of years, but it's that idea that the engagement is all about the people. And the only way to be able to engage is to be able to understand what they're going through. If I ever lose that focus, then it is time for me to retire. I haven't lost that drive yet, though. I've just lost sometimes the physical ability to do the work. <laughs> That's number one. And the other thing that I've found, and this was initially when I look back over the last three decades, one of the things that I had to quickly learn, you know, I got the kind of the, you know, the, the uh, scholastic education, which was very important for me to be able to understand how we apply things. But the other piece that um, uh, for a short spell in my career lost focus on was the idea of learning from others. And I, I think I brought this up when I, when, I had my, um, when I got my award last year, which I'm still just so humbled by. But step outside of your comfort zone. Ask those difficult questions, but find yourself a mentor. I've had the opportunity to be a mentor for a number of folks, both kind of informal and, and formal arrangements. It's one of, the, one of the best things that I've ever had in my experience. But I, to this day, and again, you know, I've been, I've been in the um, occupational environmental health and safety arena for, this is my 27th year. And when I think about that, I still have a mentor. Um, I have a fantastic mentor, and I'll, I'm going to give her a plug. Her name is Erin Black, and she's the Vice President of Risk Management and Sustainability for Coca-Cola Beverages Florida. 
she was my boss at Coca-Cola Refreshments when I was with the Coke company. And, you know, this is a, this is a leader who is, you know, I don't think she'd want me to tell her age, but she is younger than I am. But because of her vast experiences with being a global leader in companies like Coca-Cola and Sara Lee and then coming to the Coke company, I realized that, you know, I don't know it all, but I can go and find somebody who has been the best at what they can do. And that's one of our mantras actually within our, within our organization is to be the best. You have to learn from the best. So I always seek out that person. So I still have a, a mentor. And I also have some other, other folks that are kind of informal mentors. Peter Mills, who I mentioned, who has had a long, diverse career with the Coca-Cola system. And I think that's so important is just to reach out for those people that really, truly have a clear understanding and know what they've done because they've either lived it or they're a heck of a lot smarter than you are. So in some days, you just got to sit back. I don't know. I need to ask. That's actually one of the questions that I was going to ask you, because I do remember you talking about mentors. But, you know, how many have you had, would you say, in your career? And is there one that changed you the most? Yes. There is definitely one that changed me the most. And part of it was... You know, when I worked for Coca-Cola Refreshments, Aaron Black became our vice president in, I, wanted, I think it was 2012. And at that point, I was considering a career change, not necessarily getting out of OHS, but possibly leaving the Coca-Cola company because I felt like I had, I had not had enough experience or I didn't, or wasn't getting, um, you know, maybe necessarily the opportunities to do other things within it. And she came on board and recognized that I needed to be challenged more in my role, which was good. And she did that by providing me not only learning opportunities, but also project opportunities. And one of the things within kind of my educational history is I've had the opportunity to uh, do some postgraduate work at um, Georgia Tech. Um, I did uh, a program that Coke sponsors called Supply Chain Management Excellence. Uh, which is a one-week intensive course at uh, Georgia Tech, uh, which was awesome uh, because I needed to understand not only how my role played in the broader supply chain arena within Coke, but also learn how I could interact with other supply chain leaders and speak the same language. That led to doing a two-week intensive course called Supply Chain Leadership Excellence. And to the interesting thing about that course is that it's, um, you need to be nominated to go and do that. You know, it was part of that overall process was being able to get into that course. So Aaron was the first one who really um, helped supported my career, gave me a lot more opportunities. The other one that I had that, um, and there's been, you know, I think all my bosses have been great, which is tremendous. I've been very, very fortunate in my career. The other one, though, was Helen Davis, who was a uh, senior su- uh, supply chain vice president with Coke. And her big thing was, yes, you're an EHS professional, but you're going to learn quality you're going to learn manufacturing concepts. You're going to learn. And we would, she would take me on when we went on plant tours and she would literally help me understand how processes worked. She would constantly ask me questions and help me to be able to articulate how things work within a manufacturing plant. And her big thing was you might be an EHS professional, but you need to learn other aspects. And for her, her big focus was me with me was learning quality, which what do I need that for? Well, come five years later, <laughs> here we there go. There you are. But yeah, so I've been, and I've been very fortunate. And I think the other thing too, though, is I have been super, super, 
I don't know if you call it lucky or whatever, but I have had some of the top EHS and quality people work for me throughout my career. And, and what, what I always look for, and I mentioned this about Sianca, sometimes to be able to achieve success in a particular profession may mean that you may have to leave the company you're working for to be able to get that additional experience. The thing is, is when I look at the folks that have worked for me over the past, I still follow their careers. I want to know how well they're doing. And when I look at, um, you know, folks that have worked for me that are now, you know, vice presidents with um, large logistics companies or assistant vice presidents with big elevator companies, and, and I'm like, wow, this is tremendous. They have gone on to, to great things. I don't sit back and go, well, that's all my doing. I'm just like, I am so proud of these people because they've realized that they need, they may have to leave to be able to excel if they want to go further in their career, you know, and good for them. I, I think it's great. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm just very proud of the people that work for me and uh, equally as proud for the people that have been a part of my uh, journey. So Well, and I appreciate being a woman in the safety field that the mentors you mentioned were women as well. Yes. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. The yeah. best. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, I, my wife says this to me because she's one of them. Obviously, the best bosses I've had have been female. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had uh, I've had one solid <laughs> male boss who was the person who really got me into safety. Um, and it's funny because he's not even in the safety field now. He's uh, he works for the Canadian Medical Association as oh, one wow. of the associate directors. And I just laugh because the uh, but when I look back over my entire career, yeah, it's been. It's yeah. been all women. It's fantastic. Oh, good. It's diversity. It's <laughs> awesome. DEI for us, it's important. Well, I think being in safety, there's always funny stories or crazy stories oh, or something right. you've seen, right, that you like just that, have we not taught these people anything? Like, what are what have I come, ac- come upon? So do you have anything like that that you'd be willing to share with us? Either a crazy story or something that was, you know, impactful oh, for you? <laughs> impactful, yes. I've actually, I've had a couple of very... Um, you know, I, the unfortunate part is, is throughout my career, I've been involved in serious injury and fatality investigations. Yeah. The one that was probably the most impactful to me was a number of years ago where um, we always preach to our folks about, you know, it's not just a matter of checking, but double checking, making sure that we're doing the, you know, the right thing. If we are, if you're utilizing, say, a powered industrial truck, make sure that, you know, Mast is down, keys are taken out of it so they can't be operated. Now, I was in a situation, and I won't mention the company, but I was in a situation where a powered industrial truck was left outside of a building with the keys in it. And nobody, the, the, uh, the manager at that time didn't realize it was outside. Two 16-year-olds got a hold of the vehicle and uh, were joyriding out in one of, the, you know, one of the areas, one of the parking lots. Uh, the vehicle tipped over, and uh, um, fortunately, the person, uh, the young person, uh, lived. But they ended up with a pretty catastrophic injury. Uh. So, you know, part of you, when you run into those situations, that immediately you want to go fault finding, right? And one of the things that I've learned over my career is that, as much as the earlier instinct is to go and find fault with with an individual or whatever happened, you really have to step back and look at that overall incident in its entirety and start picking apart things like, what are the processes that led that to happen? Where was, there, where was the breakdown in process? Is there something within our standard operating procedures around powered industrial equipment that we missed? And if we didn't, then 
maybe there was something where you know, the, the person involved got distracted from what they should have been working on. How can we correct that? What sort of things can we put in place? What I've done in, in a lot of those catastrophic incidents is try to learn from each one of those and really understand it isn't just about the individual. There's a lot of talk around you know human and organizational practices and stuff like that that really help to open up our eyes around the fact that don't just focus on the individual. Focus on the processes, focus on the activities, what truly led to that. Don't just say it was that person's fault, they broke, they broke a policy. Funny things, oh yeah, I've had lots of funny things that have happened where you kind of just shake your head and, and uh, go, well, that was interesting, how can we avoid that from happening? Part of it usually comes from one of the greatest innovations that we've had, getting back to innovations, is the idea of putting uh, cameras in vehicles. Okay, in cab cameras that are, you know, in cab cameras that focus not only on the on the on the commercial motor vehicle operator, but looking down the road. Um, We now have cameras that can actually look around the vehicle, which I think are just tremendous. But in our case, within within Swire and other bottlers, it's in cab and also looking down the road. And some of the funniest things is that, um, number one, we have some of the most professional over the road drivers of any company. Um, we have some of the highest compliance ratings when it comes to our drivers, driver qualifications. And when incidents near misses do occur, it's really great to be able to see that driver do all the right things, right? How they you know, miss a near collision, um, how they handle things like distracted driving and other drivers. But what always, I always love listening to the videos because inevitably something bad gets said. <laughs> it's awesome. So those are the funny things. I do like that. But, you know, I'm always proud of when I look at it. Um, and, you know, the one thing that's really helped us is, is the fact that it, it helps to improve our overall driver behavior. But why I say we have some of the best drivers is that when I look at those incidents that could be potentially catastrophic and they've avoided it, I'm like, man, these, these folks are champs when it comes behind the wheel. But, yeah, those are always kind of... Um, there's a little bit of uh, levity in, in some of those videos. Um, you know, I, I think when I look at, um, you know, everything else that's kind of happened in my career, I mean, it's always, it's always fascinating to me when we involve our associates in doing things like, whether it's incident investigations or JHAs, we always want to get the associates' point of view, the frontline employees' point of view when we're doing those. And, and I think it's always great when, you ask the question of, can you take me through the steps of your job? And they kind of look at you like, you don't know. And I was going with the, with you, I just say to them up front, pretend I know nothing, because I don't, I don't know anything. Show me what you're doing. And it's always great. And that's always kind of fun, because then they get very excited and they want to show you everything. They also show you the shortcuts and why they don't do certain things. And that makes it fun, because what it does is it says, okay, things that we're doing to be able to improve the overall safety culture or at least their awareness is is great it's working but you're always best to learn from your frontline employees than you are sitting in an office trying to do something like an inspection or a jj yeah yeah you can learn all kinds of things oh yeah i mean it really is and those are usually when the fun things happen too so yeah yeah (laughs) well good what okay so this is you know you've been in safety for so long what would you tell the Brad Patterson 40 years ago? Oh, man. What, you, would, what, what would you tell yourself that you wish now that you wish you would have known back then? How far back we went? When you first started to become, you know, first into safety. First into yeah. safety. I think one of, the, one of the things that I would have told myself is 
gain more on-the-job experience by looking at similar or like industries. I think being a, being a safety professional, you wear so many different hats. But I think one of the things is learning from other safety professionals. Coming up through Home Depot, I mean, the, the safety department at Home Depot was really created in the late 90s, uh, became part of the loss prevention group, and then it was a stand-up organization. I was very fortunate in the late 90s to be able to join that group. But even back then, it was a very, very small group, very small. And had I taken the time back then to learn from others, I think that would have been a big help to really truly understand what does it mean to be a safety professional. It took me some time, obviously, um, you know, not only the uh, educational aspects, but about, I would say about four or five years after I started in safety, I actually joined a group that was sponsored by the Workplace Safety and Insurance Board up in Ontario, and it was called Safety Groups. And it was safety professionals from all sorts of different industries and economic sectors. They brought us together, and um, we had an opportunity to do a lot of best practice sharing. And for me, that was a huge deal. The, um, I had the opportunity to get to see what, uh, how other safety professionals worked. And I would say if I had done that five years prior to that, it would have saved me a little bit of grief, especially when it came down to how best to engage with folks. The other thing that I would encourage um, people to do is um, get as much formal education as you can doesn't necessarily, and I, I, you know, as much as I applaud people that go out and get a, you know, um, undergraduate or graduate degree within uh, safety, um, I applaud those people immensely because that is a ton of dedication. The one thing, though, I still encourage folks to look at those other avenues where you can get education around safety, whether it's through the Utah Safety Council, National Safety Council, ASSP. You know, we look at, we look at those organizations to, to help build the capability of the folks that are in the industry or in our, our group today. And I would encourage you to do even more of that. I became involved w- with the National Safety Council even while I was in Canada, but even you know moving to the states, obviously working with the, uh, with the state programs and then really becoming more involved with Utah when we moved here. But ASSP as well, look at other organizations that can really help foster your, foster your career. Um, I think it's so valuable and important because it gives you the opportunity to learn from others. Oh, good. Because I was going to ask you, and would that same piece of advice be what you'd give an upcoming yes. safety professional? It sounds like it would be the I same. I would. Yeah. 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 I would say we had a couple of professors from my past that probably slapped my wrist for saying, do you need to have a, an undergraduate or a master's degree to be successful in safety? The answer is no. Does it help? Sure it does. Because one of the things that you look at is it provides you a lot of the um, strong theoretical knowledge that you'll need and will probably end up using in your career. But it's not the only avenue. There are other ways that you can also get that education. And I think that's probably the, the one thing that I would ask people to focus on today. But having said that, as I mentioned, we bring in operational folks and we're able to, it sounds funny, but we're able to teach them safety. And that's by virtue of utilizing the, the, you know, the, the resources that we have available to us, whether it's your group, all of our folks are, uh, are all members of ASSP as well. We take advantage of their learning opportunities with PDCs and, and other 
uh, learning pieces. And we also uh, are involved with organizations within the Coca-Cola system as well. Myself, I'm on the uh, I'm on the steering committee for the Global Safety Council, uh, which is made up of uh, not only global bottlers but also global units within the Coca-Cola company. I sit on the Coca-Cola Bottlers Association EOSH steering committee, and again, what that does is it allows us to network with our other bottler partners and understand what they're doing, share best practices, which is so valuable. But again, it allows for those learning opportunities for our, our teams as well. So yeah, so important. We, we talk about it at the office too. Like safety isn't singular, right? We no, partner. Everybody has to partner together. If you're Correct. a true safety professional, you really care about keeping people safe, whether it's your person or theirs. You know, just everybody to go home safely. So yeah, yeah, that's the one thing I don't mind. Uh, in fact, my Peter, he and I used to have this running joke that he was very detail oriented. Of anybody that I've known in the Coca Cola system extremely detail-oriented and a mind like a trap. And I used to make fun of him with, uh, I would say he had OCD and he would say, I care too much. I said, <laughs> I don't mind being that because I'm a safety professional first yeah. above all. So, which is good. <laughs> well, good. I know we've asked you a lot of questions and um, I appreciate you taking the time with us today. And I, you started out by saying you were going to talk about Canada. So I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. If For someone who's never been to Canada, where would you suggest they go? Oh, Tell man. us about Canada. Tell us about Canada. Yeah. Well, I was um, born and raised in southern Ontario, which is, um, you know, the capital of Canada is Ottawa. Um, the provincial capital where I grew up is Toronto. Um, I went to school in a city just south of there called Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario, which is actually one of the main uh, steel production areas within, within Canada. We moved to the U.S. We've been here now, uh, I think this is our 19th year. 19th or 20th year it all depends on what you like as of as of, as of 2024 would, would have been in we've been in the U.S. for 20 years my favorite parts of Canada I am a huge fan of kind of the near north in Ontario uh, they call it cottage country I love it up there in Muskoka but I'm also a big fan of um, the large cities as well I love Toronto I love Montreal which is in the province of Quebec the uh, I used to do a ton of skiing up in uh up in uh, Quebec in my younger years before I blew up my knees. But the other part of Canada is I love the coasts, either the East Coast or the West Coast. The Maritimes uh, in Canada, I mean, it's very similar to what you would see in Maine, um, but it's, uh, it's just so different because there's the, you know, there's the, the French culture that's up there uh, yeah. as well as the kind of the East Coast culture. And I absolutely love, love, love Vancouver Island and uh, uh, Victoria as well as the city of Vancouver. So... Can't go wrong there. Then other people will say to me, well, what about the mountains? What about Whistler and Banff and areas in, in uh, uh, Alberta? I mean, it's a beautiful country. There's yeah. a lot of places you can go to. If you had a week, man, that's a tough one. I don't know where to send. It all depends <laughs> on what you like to do. But yeah, I love it. Um, we've had a, a fantastic, we call it our adventure around the United States. When we first moved to the U.S. in 2004, I came down, as I mentioned, as a regional manager with Home Depot. And we were initially based in Colorado, uh, lived uh, outside, outside of Denver in a town called Parker, Colorado. We were there for a year, which was tremendous. And then, as have it with any large organization, we went through a restructure, ended up moving to uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Actually lived in Gilbert, great town. We were there for, um, I think in total, about five years. And it was with there when um, I was approached by Coca-Cola Enterprises. Glad I made the move, because when I look at the you know, overall... I've spent more time in the Coke system than I have had in kind of Home Depot or, or working in a, in a family-owned company. 
and the um, I am so glad I made the made that decision. Um, I have totally enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed my time with the Coke system. In fact, our CEO, Rob Gehring, was one of the first people I met when I joined CCE. He was actually in a, uh, uh, in a sales role working out of Phoenix. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it's funny just how, how many times you see people along your career within the Coke system that you've seen time and time again. So it's, it's great. But um, we lived in Atlanta for a short while, six years. Funny story behind that. Um, so when I was working for the Home Depot in 1999, I got to go to the 20th anniversary managers meeting and they had it in August in Atlanta. I don't know if you've ever been to Atlanta in August, but it is a little warm and a little humid. And all of the events were clustered into the downtown area of Atlanta. So now granted, um, this, that was a long time ago, but um, my wife got to go with me, which was fantastic. And all she remembers from that time in Atlanta in August was how hot it was, <laughs> how humid it was, and the fact that Dasani water was everywhere, okay, which is a Coke product, <laughs> yep. which is great. Fast forward to about 2000, uh, 2006, Coke again, or sorry, Home Depot again was going through a restructure. My next role was either I was going to take a corporate position in Atlanta or take a different role in Arizona. It was also the same time that I was being headhunted by Coke. And um, fortunately, they made an offer that, uh, uh, you know, I, I offer, I couldn't refuse, kind of a godfather's reference. But one of the thing was the, uh, when I went to talk, to talk to my wife, Jane, and I said, hey, we're going through a restructure at Home Depot. How do you feel about the idea of me taking a position in Atlanta? And she said, absolutely not. Never going to live in Atlanta. 2010, when I got promoted to the North American lead of VHS, that was the caveat. I had to move to Atlanta. So I came home and, and my wife, she was excellent about it. She was awesome. She said, I get to pick the house. I get to pick the neighborhood we're going to live at and the boys' school. And I was like, yes, dear, you've got it. And as it was, we were there for six years and it was a great time. Now, having moved to Utah... She loves it here. And I've said to her a couple of times, I said, what about going back to Atlanta? Never again. And I said, fine, <laughs> we got it. Fair enough, dear. That's great. So. so when you hang up your safety hat, are you going back to Canada? No. You're actually, staying we're here? not. Okay. We, well, we were thinking about oh. staying here. Um, this is going to sound funny, and people always ask me this question, but we're actually uh, retiring to northern Michigan. Okay. Yeah. And the reason for that, we have a cluster of friends that are all kind of retiring in the same area two of which I went to high school with, so I've known them forever. Uh, they've become great friends with my wife. Uh, we love the area. It just is tremendous. It's one of those areas where, similar to here, you get the four seasons, but my wife is a huge, huge winter fan, and she wants lots of snow. Well, then that's yeah. the place, now, I guess. Of course, my piece to it is that um, I have my older son, uh, who also works for Swire. He works at our bottling plant in West Valley. Uh, he lives here in, in the Valley. My uh, younger son, though, he and his fiance live in Alabama, and I'm really, really hoping that they decide to stay in the South because I've got it in my head that if it gets too bad up North, then at least we have some place to go. We can either come <laughs> here or we can go South. So that's right. That's what I'm hoping for. But that's not for a few years. So. Well, I appreciate you, like I said before, taking the time. I know you're very busy. You have a lot going on. And um, it's important for us to kind of share this message and to hear from someone who's been such an advocate on a global level for safety. And I appreciate how much you advocate for the Safety Council as well. Like, we're never going to turn that down. So 
I appreciate that very much and really applaud what you do day in and day out. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And really great to see all of you again. And I appreciate the opportunity to have a chance to be on the podcast. This is awesome. Yeah. My first, my first or second podcast. We're trying to figure that out. I think it's my second. Yeah, I'm out there somewhere <laughs> on something else, but yeah. No, this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.